This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what actually in the hell is actually going on? Chat GPT now, it's GPT-4. How is it going to transform the world? How is it going to transform our lives? This new AI technology that is at everyone's beck and call right now, we have created as humans artificial intelligence that is as smart as us. It's not sentient, but it's as smart as us and for getting smarter by the day, teaching itself new things and new information. This is literally a development that is as revolutionary as the printing press and probably more so. It's going to transform the economy. It's going to transform the way we interact with each other. It's going to transform the way we do our jobs. It's going to transform which jobs we do and which jobs we don't do anymore. And it's happening at a speed that I think uh, many of us haven't anticipated. So all of those things that you just outlined are things that are thrilling, things that are transformative, scary, but thrilling, right? The printing press and electricity and the automobile and all of these things that are absolutely revolutions in their way, industrial revolutions for sure, but revolutions in their way. I worry a lot about a society that is wholly dependent upon technology that no longer interacts with other people. You know, now if you need to go and find something out about quantum physics, you're going to sit down, you're going to go look at Harvard and MIT, you're going to see who speaks coherently and who's good, who may have won a Nobel Prize, who's really awesome and interesting and innovative. You're going to talk to a human being, you know, with AI, with GPT-4 or whatever, now Bing also has one, and I suspect there will be more comers in this market. You won't. You'll just you'll just be there by yourself, You're sitting there with your laptop or your phone, interacting with it. Sure, your horizons intellectually might be broader, but you're not going to be talking to human beings. But we're not talking to human beings right now, if you think about it, in a lot of ways. We're spending a lot of time on the internet. I mean, it's it's a, basically, it's an interactive internet. It's a research tool that will be able to, instead of, you know, just Googling something, we'll no longer Google things. We will, we will have a personal research assistant who, you know, is in our home, available 24 hours a day, and is basically has the intelligence of Einstein, who can answer any questions we want. But no, Mark, you're not listening to me for a second. You're not. Well, let me see. You're not processing. Oh, I'm sorry. Daddy. What I'm saying. <laughs> what you think is going to be irrelevant? I'm looking forward to having. is going to answer my questions for me. <laughs> <laughs> I won't have to talk to you anymore on this podcast. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna. Do, I mean, Tyler Cowan, our guest, just did a podcast with GPT, so maybe I can do that too, and then I won't have to have these annoying interludes. It won't be as much fun, and you would miss me terribly. I would. You're right. I know it. I, but no, honestly speaking, look, we have seen 
reams of data about this, about how children no longer interact with other children. Kids in their teens are no longer going out and parking and, you know, having sex in the back of a car and making out. They're sitting at home and watching other people do God knows what on, on their phones. Uh, so yep. People are no longer having life experiences. Instead of going out in the world and doing sports, they're sitting at home and watching other people do them. Instead of going out and staring at the cool kids and figuring out what it is you want to be, they're sitting there and watching the Kardashians on their phone. This is corrosive to a society that has heretofore been built on human connections. And I worry about this a lot. So I don't disagree with anything you just said. But like all technology, it's a double-edged sword, right? It brings good and it brings bad. The fact that we now have cell phones, which are basically supercomputers in our pocket that can give us any information we want at any time, has dramatically transformed the world in good ways. It's also transformed our children in bad ways. And I think this is just another technological advance that's going to do the same thing. It's going to transform our world in positive ways, and it's going to also transform our world in negative the ways. The atomization of society, Mark, is a bad thing. The atomization of society and the breaking of human connections and the inability of people to have other humans with whom they speak and instead have these series of false interactions that are texts and chats instead of real human interactions interactions, uh, sending people memes instead of sending people letters, all of this. Not, you know, I know I sound like a Luddite and, and I- You do. I was about, that's the word I was about to use. Look, I love my, <laughs> I, I'm on my phone just as much as anybody else. I love it. I play chess on it. I talk to my kids on it. I stalk my kids when they go out on dates so I know where they are. I am thrilled when my husband says I've already left the office to get home and I'm like dude I see you sitting in your office I love all of that and I okay use- big brother <laughs> I, use all of it. <laughs> I hate to tell you Mark but and I use all of it but- chat GPT where is Steven right now <laughs> exactly. it's, gonna, it's gonna know but these are not in some always such good things and what I can't figure out is how we restore some of the balance. Because it seems to me that having AI friends and AI robots and AI maids and AI research assistants and AI everything, homework helpers, teachers, whatever it is, that is going to only exacerbate this trend. And what is the what is the push in the other direction? Um, it's parents parenting their children, I guess. I mean, you know, we're we're just seeing this because this is, our kids are the first generation to grow up with these devices. We didn't have them. The millennials didn't really have them. This is this is a new phenomenon, and now we're layering AI on top of it, and we don't know how it's going to affect our children and our and society from that perspective. But you know, you and I are national security nerds. It's also going to affect society in lots of different ways. I mean, we talk about it a little with Tyler, but scientists just used. AI to come up with an antibiotic to fight antibiotic resistant bacteria that was done in a way that human beings could have never come up with this. They, they basically inputted all these different molecules and asked the AI to figure out which molecules in the, of these hundreds of thousands that existed had the antibacterial capacity to, I'm, I'm speaking about this in very sort of simplified way, anti, antibacterial capacity to fight this bacteria, and it came up with it in a way that people couldn't. 
that could also be used to build a bioweapon for which there's no defense. Right. That's the thing. You know, we talk about this as if somehow it'll be great that the U.S. is ahead of, you know, our enemies in, in Beijing and the Communist Party. But of course, the short answer is every single thing we've ever built, they've stolen and used for ill, including our F-35 and our F-22. So, Or look at drones. I mean, during the war on terror, we were the only country in the world that had advanced, you know, drone technology. Now everybody's got them. The Russians are using drones from Iran uh, to attack the Ukrainians. So all of these technologies get democratized and, and spread out to all actors eventually. But like any technology, you know, you can't be a Luddite about it. We, we, you know, we, we certainly don't want to stop it like the Luddites wanted to stop the advance of technology because then other people will get it before us and they'll use it and they'll advance and, and find ways to use it to, to harm us. We need to harness the technology and pretty much every technology that's been invented while it's had downsides has had tremendous upsides. I mean, you know, the printing press enabled the American Revolution. You know, without the printing press, there would be no democracy. It also enabled the Russian Revolution and and uh, the rise of communism and the rise of Nazism. I mean, you know, the same printing press that could print the the Bible and make it accessible to everybody also could print Mein Kampf. So, you know, it really depends on how we harness the technology and how we use it and how we respond as human beings. We're not going to be replaced. I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of, is that AI is going to replace us, that it's going to be, you know, uh, you know, like Terminator with Skynet. They're eventually going to decide to destroy us. And it could be used by people to destroy us, maybe, but we have to stay ahead of that and harness it to fight those people and to use it for good. Yeah, okay. I was just about to introduce our guest, but I want to remind you about why it is that people have gotten so freaked out. One of the reasons why a lot of people are freaked out is because of that absolutely viral, and I mean hugely viral, interview uh, in the New York Times between Kevin Roos, who sat down for two hours with Bing's uh, AI and had this increasingly uncomfortable and weird conversation with this AI interlocutor. And where it started was all this cool, cool stuff. And in the end, the thing was like a bloody stalker. You know, you don't love your wife. You love me and I love you. You, you, We will link it here. But it was the talk of not just the town on the East Coast. It was the talk of everywhere for at least a week. If you guys haven't read it, read it and you'll know why I feel creeped out. In the meantime, though, let us introduce our guest. For those of you who don't know him, Tyler Cowan is a professor at George Mason University. He holds the Holbert L. Harris Chair in the Economics Department there, but he also hosts an economic blog called Marginal Revolution, which I commend to everybody. And he maintains this also very cool Marginal Revolution University website, which is sort of online education. He's a, a terrific, lucid, and very optimistic voice on AI. Here's our interview. Well, Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. So everybody's talking about chat GPT or GPT-4 and the advance of AI and how this is going to be a technology that is as transformative to our society as the printing press. You're the expert on this. You've been studying this. Tell us how it's going to rock our worlds. I would say GPT-4 is the expert on this. We're all struggling to catch up with it. And it's so new, in a way, there are no experts on this, including often the people who have built it. 
who don't always understand how it works. But I think for the first time, uh, human beings have created true intelligence. It's not conscious, it doesn't have feelings, it's not sentient, but it can perform really a large number and wide variety of human tasks at the level of, say, an IQ 130 or 140 person, plus it often seems to know everything. So this is just a momentous development in the history of mankind. That sounds super cool <laughs> and a little bit frightening. All of us of a certain age have seen the movies, whether it was Stanley Kubrick's 2001 or it was the Terminator movies and Skynet. And I have to say, you know, it does feel a little scary. You've poured a lot of cold water on the notion that this is scary in other interviews. Tell us why this is not Skynet. All major changes bring a lot of good and a pretty high degree of bad. I think of it as like the printing press, as you mentioned before. The printing press enabled the scientific revolution, later the industrial revolution. We can't imagine modern life or long life expectancies without it. But the printing press also gave some spur to wars of religion, other wars, the writings of Lenin, of, of Hitler. So truly fundamental changes just disorient people, restructure many elements of reality. But when push comes to shove, you have to do them. There's no particular reason to think, you know, AI as we have it now is going to destroy us. It's not that I think we have very specific, very firm predictions, but simply being a superintelligence does not give, you know, a computerized entity the ability to manipulate the world very easily. Our world is highly de decentralized based on a lot of inarticulable knowledge. But I think for areas such as learning, education, tutoring, how institutions store their information, how scientific advances are made, this will just make an enormous amount of difference and often pretty quickly. Well, of course, you know, there's modern day Luddites out there who are, you know, setting their hair on fire about this. But most technologies that have in developed and revolutionized whether it be industry or manufacturing, whatever, they've generally made life better. Do you think the same will be true with AI? Oh, absolutely. Imagine that your kid now has a high-quality tutor. It can ask questions, you know, endlessly and interact with it on basically every single topic. Not everyone will use this properly, but it's a phenomenal advance. Now, I'm happy about the complainers. I think they'll end up making this a better product, a better service. But one way to think about it is that if we don't do this, China and other countries will. And who would you rather have in the lead here, us or them? So it is going to happen. We want a better version of it rather than a worse version. You brought up students and tutors, and that's really, that has been not actually in the apocalyptic area that I mentioned up front, but actually that has been an area where there's been a lot of concern expressed. I teach at Georgetown. I can't count the number. By the way, we mentioned dogs barking in the background. I got that now. Sorry. What breed, may I ask? <laughs> a German Shepherd, two German Shepherds. Oh, excellent. Great. Yes, they're very good. But back to AI. At Georgetown, we, they've sent out any number of notes about this and what it means in town meetings. And I got to say, you know, uh, I went to chat GPT before this podcast and said, what questions should I ask for our podcast on AI? It didn't give me a great set of questions. But it gave me a very possible set of questions. What does this mean for learning and for education in the shape that we know it now? Well, for one thing, I mean, our schools are so screwed up. <laughs> so much of what they do is about ranking the students rather than teaching them. So the panic there 
shows how screwed up they are, I say this will force good schools to reorient themselves almost fully toward teaching. And actually what will rank you over time is the AI. That itself may be scary in some ways. But institutions such as take-home homework, I mean, that's over forever. I say it's a good thing. Uh, what we need to do is teach our students how to use GPT-4 and its successors to do their work and to build projects, because that's what the jobs of the very near future, or even the present, will be like. Now, on you asking GPT what to ask me, I would just make the side point. You really need to word your prompts very specifically to get the best answers. So if you just say, oh, what should I ask Tyler Cowan about GPT? It's okay, but it's not really impressive. But if you give it a lot of context, a lot of detail, and then say, you know, give me the answers of someone who is expert in the other podcasts of Tyler Cowan, something like that, uh, it will do much better. So really, one of the skills that will emerge out of this is that of the skilled interrogator, right? That's correct. The person who can manage and ask probing questions and use this technology to get answers that we previously couldn't get. Mark, it always comes back to waterboarding with you. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote a 40-page paper on how to give GPT better prompts. Really? Most of all in the area of economics. Uh, it's been a very popular paper. It's on SSRN, and it's called How to Use GPT to Learn and Teach Economics. But it's general knowledge you can apply to virtually any topic. But is that going to be a job? I mean, managing GPT? It's already a job. It's my job right now. It's your job, too. It's not the only part of your job, but it will become an increasingly important part of your job. Okay, but let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in the context of social media and app dependence and the kind of networks that that builds. So I'll just give you an example. TikTok, right? Okay, TikTok isn't an intelligent interface, but certainly it'll, it adds a lot of content to people's lives. For me, and I know I'm a person of a certain age, but for me, it is a net negative. It is sucking up people's time. It is propagandizing uh, in a way that is perhaps subtle to, to many of its users and nonetheless hugely influential. In addition, you know, it is a tool of a foreign government, and you mentioned that already. But isn't this yet another crutch that helps us avoid reading books and thinking thoughts and talking to other humans? Well, it's like sitting down in a room of Nobel laureates and having the ability to ask them questions. Not everyone will use that for good, but it has plenty of nuance, incredible knowledge of detail, of history. I just did a podcast with GPT where GPT played the role of Jonathan Swift. And the GPT did better, I would say, than about a third of my human guests. And my human guests are quite notable people. So I'm not, again, I'm not saying everyone will use this well, but it's a remarkable opportunity you can ask for objective, subjective answers, whatever you want. I'm pretty optimistic. Danny and I both have kids who you know, are just coming out of their teenage years. And they're the first generation that grew up with the iPhone, with screens, right? And we still haven't quite absorbed the impact that that's had on them. I mean, we, we see all these signs of, you know, uh, there's depression, especially among girls. It, uh, social media has a lot of positive impacts. And, you know, you have a computer in your hand that you can get all sorts of information from. But on the other hand, as Danny said, there's TikTok and all these other things. I mean, we don't even know the impact that's had. And now we're layering on AI on top of that. What are the downsides for parents and kids of, of having this technology? 
Well, if it makes you feel any better, GPT models are about to obliterate a lot of social media use. Rather than going on to the site and doing whatever, you'll just speak or write to your GPT, hey, tell me what's up in all my accounts, you know, condense it, point me to what's important. It don't necessarily make things better, but I think on average it will make things a lot better, save people a lot of time. You could even give your GPT a command, well, the material that might depress me or harm me in some way, you know, take that away, only send me the good news. So again, it will be up to how people use it, but it means a lot more autonomy, a lot more customization. The whole way we organize information on the internet will change. If you like the old defaults, you can still do them. Still just go to Instagram, forget about your GPT. But with all these plugins, I think more and more people are just going to take the GPT option. Like, hey, what's on Twitter that I care about? Let me know. And it will do it. God, I would love that, actually, I confess. So, obviously, <laughs> you are more positive than a lot of the, let's let's call it chatter, that's out there about this, which tends to be sort of nervous and apocalyptic, as you sort of described. You know, all, all innovation is at first rather scary and can enable bad as well as good things. One of the things that's fascinating to us and one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the podcast is because you do talk about the economics of AI. You talk about the transformative uh, effect that it might have on work, on professions, on the shape of the economy and human interaction with the economy. Tell us a little bit about what you see as the ups and the downs. You wrote a great piece in Marginal Revolution and a couple of others. Well, I think if you're a company that organizes routine back office work for American corporations using, say, the Philippines or India, uh, that will be automated fairly quickly. And I would be bearish on that sector. That will be bad for some number of workers in other countries. I think the big uh, gainers are, I wouldn't call it unskilled labor, it requires a lot of skill, but people who build things, you know, carpenters, gardeners, people in construction. So we're going to have a lot more ideas, a lot more new projects, a lot of things we'll want to do. So this should raise the wages of Americans who are like not producing ideas, but doing things with their hands, which GPT cannot do at all. And the chattering classes, people in law, also, people who work with words, you know, the word cells, they're called, a lot of their jobs will become a lot more competitive. So it's going to be very interesting who it helps and uh, who has a tougher time of it. But it will be inverting a lot of some of the other recent trends. So Danny and I are both national security nerds. So we obviously worry about these national security implications. One of the security advantages we have is our barriers to access to information. So for example, it's really hard to build a nuclear weapon or to understand how a nuclear weapon is built. If you're a terrorist network or a terrorist state, you got to find somebody who, a, sci a Nobel Prize type scientist who understands this. You've got to turn them and convince them to join your cause and help you build the weapon and all the rest of it. But if ChatGPT is like having a Nobel Prize winning scientist at, at your beck and call, that kind of democratizes weapons of mass destruction and destructive technologies, doesn't it? Well, I don't know exactly what data it's been trained on. I'm assuming that the people who built it did not train it on data for how to make a nuclear bomb. But what GPT models do not do is tell you like how to run the lab, how to keep yourself safe, the kind of inarticulable procedures that are a part of every production process that aren't simply written down. But on national security as an issue, I would say it's a huge edge for America over China. We're well ahead of them. And they will be using our GPT models, so they will have access 
to Western ideas more than ever before. They'll have a big incentive to use VPNs. And the Great Firewall essentially has come down because of GPT models. So the ones who are in trouble is China, not us. But for example, I was just reading Henry Kissinger's uh, new book on AI. And one of the stories they tell is how scientists used AI to produce a new antibiotic for antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And it came up with a antibiotic that humans could not have come up with that was able to overcome the resistant bacteria. Couldn't the same information and technology be used to build a bioweapon that is immune to treatment by humanity? I mean, this, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. Well, look at the point in its most general terms. Again, the printing press, the internet, uh, telephones, radio, automobiles, they all can be used for, for good and bad purposes. You have to ask yourself, do you think the forces of good are more cooperative, more productive, more innovative in such a way that new advancements generally help good more than they help evil? And I think that's the case here as well. Uh, but it is correct to think that resources more generally uh, can help evil parties. I think that's something we have to deal with. We've been dealing with it since mankind invented fire, right? Uh, things go on fire. Fire leads to weapons. Weapons kill people. But at the end of the day, it's still a good thing that we have fire. And this will be like that. So I want to come back to some people will be out of jobs. Other people will be in a very advantaged situation. I remember back when 3D printing was first a source of innovation and was talking to an expert on this and they said, look, the way it's going to be with 3D printing is it's going to obviate shipping. Basically, if you're going to be able to send a program over to wherever it is and then the other party is going to be able to print out the parts and put this thing together, and that's going to be the end of that. Now, maybe that's in the offing. Maybe my technological expertise, not there's no maybe here, is, is abominable. But we really actually haven't moved in that direction. It hasn't actually been as transformative as I think people suggested, at least not outside a, a more experimental space, not in wide use. Is it possible that we're overselling this in our minds? Well, I've never been optimistic about 3D printing, <laughs> in part because shipping just isn't that costly, right? And there are economies of scale and manufacture. But labor is very costly, and laborers who work with words are costly. I don't think they'll be put out of work. I would just make the point that those who can manage GPT models will advance at the expense of those who cannot. And many people who work with words will have to find other jobs, which they will be able to do. Uh-oh. But it may not be the exact kind of job they want. So, But Mark says, uh-oh, and that's exactly right. If we think about the last eight years, seven years, if we think about the let's make it sound grand, the Donald Trump revolution, at least in part, that was about a certain sector of society's inability to, to keep up in a changed economy. The fact that they were being marginalized, you know, that we weren't making buggy whips, to use the old analogy, that a lot of manufacturing had been expatriated. You know, does this cause, does this present risks in that area? Well, Annette, many of those people who say were hurt by trade with China in manufacturing, they're exactly the people that will be helped by this new technology because it will bring a lot more projects to America, just new ideas for doing things, new plans. Think of it, what, what can GPT models not do? 
They can't do hammer and nails. They can't build a structure. They can't plant crops. They can't tend to a garden. So in relative terms, the demands for those laborers will go up and it will reverse some of the earlier trends. I mean, word sales have, you know, gained enough in earnings over the last 20, 30 years. That's my view. It's bad for you and me. Exactly. Well, then it must be bad. <laughs> well, I think if you're, if you have an already established reputation, you'll be fine. But if you're 20 years old and you have career plans, I would say a lot of those people, one way or another, should rethink their career plans and also make sure they're very, very good at understanding and working with these new AI models. Talk a little bit more about that. Like if you're a young person, what career should you be avoiding or what career should you be looking at? Well, I think almost any career is fine if you can manage and master the models. So that would be the new skill. It's like you have an, an army of near infinite research assistants to do your bidding, if only you know how to manage them. So that's by far the most important question. Unless, again, you're something like a carpenter where GPT just you know can't pick up the hammer and nails. But if you're 20 years old and you're thinking of becoming an op-ed writer, you do need to realize that the median quality op-ed GPT-4 probably already can write. And by the time we get to GPT-5 in, say, a year, it will be better than most op-ed writers. So it doesn't mean you can't do it, but you'd better think that through pretty seriously. Well, you're putting out a pretty darn low standard for <laughs> on op-ed writers. Mark is one of my favorites, but there are Boy, are there a lot of craptastic folks out there. So let's talk a little bit about governance. We now live in a world in which our government seeks to control everything, where you go to the bathroom, what you call other people, pretty much everything else. There are nascent discussions about AI governance, about how to manage it, whether it's to have a global approach to all of AI or whether it is to you know specific parts of it. How should people even begin to think about this? Because even though you may or we may have a libertarian attitude, that is certainly not going to be the attitude of many in government. Well, government is so slow and so ill-informed, it's probably not going to matter. Like there are no meaningfully new international agreements. We can't even manage the WTO, the UN, many other institutions. So to think some international body will be effective here, I mean, maybe the EU will try to ban it in some way, but I don't even think they'll succeed. It's, it's too useful. People will just access the U.S. version of it. So governments will be very late to the party, for better or worse. And these things will progress. We've seen incredible progress in the last two years. The U.S. government, other governments essentially have done nothing. They've helped it in some background ways in terms of subsidizing their early R&D. But it's going to, you know, follow its own logic, whether we like that or not. So I would say let's get used to it and let's work for the better version of it rather than the worse version. This technology seems to be different in one important respect from other technological revolutions, which is, you know, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution and the increasing automation of manufacturing and production, that threatened the jobs of unskilled workers. This seems to threaten the jobs of the intelligentsia. This seems to threaten the jobs of the educated elites to some extent, or maybe people in the middle more than it does the working class, because as you said, AI can't hammer nails, but it can write an op-ed. How is this different from previous technological revolutions? Well, we're going to have to adapt, right? Imagine if you know a deity came along and gave all of the writers 100 free research assistants. Plenty of people in our shoes would have no idea how to use them, and plenty would become a lot more productive and better and more innovative. 
and we're going to see people take both paths. I think it's a fascinating test. I mean, I'm dying to see who stays ahead of the curve and who falls behind. But I'm not worried about that. I realize individuals will experience hardships, but they're still educated people. They'll be able to get other jobs. But like boo-hoo, if they can't, you know, write another op-ed for the Washington Post for the next 37 years. At the social level, I think that's very good. <laughs> How will the field of computer science change? I've got a 21-year-old in college studying computer science, and he's studying computer languages. But coding is going to, you say, all, half of all coding is going to be done by AI within two years. That was an underestimate. I said that a few weeks ago. The pace has been faster than I thought, and it, it will be more than that sooner than that. But the creative element of programming still will come from humans. You'll either have to be a super sharp creative idea generator programmer type, or you'll be kind of editor checker of the AI code. One of those two things. I strongly suspect the number of jobs in programming will go up, but they will be split. And again, you'll have to be good at one of those two things. You can't just be an ordinary 60th percentile programmer, you know, slogging away at your coding every night. So I still want to come back to the 30,000 feet with you for a second. I worry about the garbage in, garbage out quality of data that we have. In other words, you know, if AI is not making value judgments, if it isn't distinguishing between better ideas and worse ideas, and I realize that in and of itself is a value judgment, if it, you know, is unwilling to make a distinction between democracy and Marxism, to put it sort of crudely old school, um, doesn't that risk actually reinforcing bad ideas, reinforcing divisions? And especially if you talk about how dependent we're going to become on this, that this is going to become oracular, right? In ways that we won't read, we won't have Mark Thiessen's arguing with, you know, Ross Douthat's arguing with, with Ruth Marcus's. You know, we will have instead AI guy with one view uh, arguing with AI with AI guy with another view. How is that going to be a good thing? I read the GPT every night. I love reading it. You know, all your ifs, it, it can do all those things you want. So if I ask it, what causes inflation? Give me an answer worthy of Milton Friedman. That's exactly what it gives me. I get Milton Friedman, in a sense, you know, in my living room. So if you ask it for uh, what would be a comical, stupid answer, such as I might hear from a circus clown, it will give you that too. So it is really up to the user. But I'm not so pessimistic about human nature. I think the smarter, more productive people uh, will have a bigger impact with it uh, than the idiots. I always hope that that is the case in this world, and yet increasingly I, I do wonder whether the idiots aren't having a moment. But maybe that's just because I'm a natural half-glass-empty kind of a person. Mark? Yes, you are. But if you think about how it empowers you, I mean, how much different is it to be a newspaper? I'm sorry, we shouldn't be focusing so much on columnists because most people are not columnists who are listening to this, but it's fascinating to but us. to hear to listen to columnists, right? So It's very different to be a columnist today than it was when Bill Sapphire was a columnist in the 1970s, because, you know, I have the internet. So I can wake up in the morning and read some news story and then do some research and come up with some really interesting ideas and turn around a column in a day on a topic that I might not have known that much about before, but I read a bunch of smart people and was able to direct my research in a way or have a great researcher like we do with Clara that can find the information 
And, you know, now I'm going to be able to do that with GPT even more effectively. In an hour. Yes. Yeah. I hope you're working on this now. <laughs> I mean, it'll enable creators, won't it? Oh, absolutely. Again, especially the ones who learn how to use it. But that will be asymmetrically distributed, and you'll see some of your good buddies just fall by the wayside. It was interesting, and this is not a question. I'm just going to throw this out here as my exit comment and, and hear what you have to say. I was just in Iraq with one of our colleagues from the American Enterprise Institute, and we were meeting with a, a very senior Shiite spiritual leader. And we're talking about the future of Iraq and political parties. And all of a sudden, Michael, Michael Rubin, our colleague, turns to him and he goes, what impact do you think AI is going to have on religion and Islam? And you could see that our friend, uh, the, the Saeed, had not been asked this question before. And he sort of stopped and he contemplated it. And what he said was actually quite fascinating. He said, well, you know, for us, for Shiites who don't really have interpreters in the same way, our doctrine is more fixed. This isn't going to be a problem at all. But for those who really rely on interpreters, he's saying critically, like the Sunnis, this could be very dangerous because people could believe separate interpretations of Islam that they read from AI. I was a little bit floored by that. That's a very insightful comment. It's very much along the lines of my own thoughts. It was fascinating. So kids growing up today, my grandchildren who are yet to be born, are they going to have like, you know, grow up with like C-3PO and R2-D2? Like, you got it. Be, like these little the robot companions that are going to like be able to answer any of their questions and help them along the way as they grow and, and move around? I'm not sure if it will be robots or a box or maybe both or people will do different things, but basically, yes, absolutely. And it will teach you, teach you languages, whatever you want at any age, as much time as you know, you're willing to put into it or your parents will let you spend. You can learn all day long in whatever style you want. Do you want it with cartoons? Do you want it in music? Do you want it in French? Everything. It'll be incredible. I mean, there will be no need to learn languages anymore because I can just speak in my language and it can translate for me. You still might want to learn languages to capture the ideas of different languages or be inside cultures. But the motives for language learning will change, right? It's true. It will change. But learning languages, I think, is always going to be important. And even now, Mark, you can use your Google Translator to do that for you in conversations. Uh, That's true. I, I found... Tyler, I, you know something? I came into this pretty negative, pretty worried about this, and you've given me a fresh perspective. I'm really grateful to you for that. I really hope you're right. It's going to be scary, but exciting too. Let's all be ready. Let me ask you an exit question. What is the most interesting question you've asked GPT, and what's the most interesting answer you've gotten? Well, when I did my podcast with, you know, I call him Jonathan GPT Swift. I said, first, tell me a joke from your time that people of your time thought was funny. And it gave me a joke. And then I said, but now tell me a joke from your time that you think is funny. And then it gave me a much more sophisticated joke that it was able to grasp that distinction and create humorous examples in each category. That just blew me away. You know, it's not just command of facts. But it's some, I wouldn't use the word understanding, but some really deep command over the underlying material. That to me was phenomenal. Fascinating. Nuances, really interesting. Terrific. Thank you again for taking the time with us. We're really grateful. Sorry for the tech trouble. Maybe ChatGPT will work this out for us in future. <laughs> ChatGPT, edit out barking dogs. 
<laughs> Take care. See both of you around. So, you know, basically our grandchildren are going to grow up with AI friends and it's going to be like Star Wars where they have like a uh, C-3PO or an R2-D2 that answers all their questions. And, you know, I watched the Star Wars movie that people still interact with other human beings, <laughs> but an evil empire rises up and they have to defeat it. You know, the, the truth is that technology will, will move on and enable things that we thought were impossible, but the battle between good and evil will continue. Well, you know, if only it would be like Star Wars, which I guess was a reasonably happy story by the end of it. Although those mid, those mid three were really crappy. But, did blow up a planet. But well, that's true. Okay, so that was a bad part. But look, you know, as with all such things, you have to want to exploit and and learn from and grow from the good, while at the same time understanding that there there aren't just going to be people left behind because that's a certitude. But there are also going to be serious risks here. And in some ways, you love the idea that it sort of democratizes knowledge. Tyler's really, really excited about the kind of the incredible resource you have, Albert Einstein, at your fingertips, sitting next to you every single day whenever you want him. But at the same time, that Albert Einstein is also going to be sitting at the knees of our enemies. That's exactly right. It's not just the Chinas and the Russias and the Irans and the North Koreas. It's also the Al-Qaeda's and the ISIS's and and, and every malevolent idiot that is out there who will suddenly be empowered. Imagine the Unabomber with this. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the it's interesting because one of the things that we depended on to stop another catastrophic terrorist attack like the one on 9-11 was the relative stupidity of the terrorists, right? So, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was a, was a strategic genius, but a lot of them just weren't that smart. And, you know, if they, they couldn't build a bioweapon. They wanted to build one. They were testing them in Afghanistan, but they really weren't able to pull it off. They'd love to build a bioweapon or a nuclear weapon, but it's really hard to do that. It's hard to get the materials in it with a nuclear weapon, bioweapon a little bit less so. But it's the knowledge that you have to find somebody who's a scientist, who understands how these weapons worked, and who can be turned to evil to work for you and to do the experiments and, and carry it out. And here you just have an AI that can do it for you and really doesn't distinguish between good guys and bad guys. It's just answers the questions of whoever asks it. And so democratizing information is terrific in many ways, but it's really bad when the information is potentially dangerous and it's putting it in the hands of uh, otherwise stupid people who wouldn't be able to harness it without the AI. So I, I... I don't I, I'm not trying to pretend that this is like a golden age that's coming with no downsides to it. There's some real dangers ahead. But the, I take some comfort in the history of technological innovation, which is that it's always made life better. We've somehow been able to harness it. There was a Brookings study just a few just uh, in 20, 2018, I believe it was, that for the first time in human history, there were more people who were rich or middle class than there were people who were poor or on the verge of poverty. That's because of capitalism, to be sure, and the, and the collapse of socialism, but it's also because of technology. Hunger doesn't exist because of te- agricultural technology in the way that it used to, even in the 70s. There's so many ways that the world is better because of technology, and so this is just another revolutionary development of technology that probably will make the world a lot better. And we just have to be uh, careful about making sure that we uh, are cognizant of the difficulties and the challenges it'll pose. Well, 
Again, I'm the glass half empty girl here. You're the glass half full. You and Tyler together make an even fuller glass. I hope you're you're all right. I can't dispute the fact that advances in technology make people's lives better. I just hope this is going to do that in ways where the costs are not going to be overwhelming. Again, there's so little we understand. There's going to be economic dislocations that we can't even possibly anticipate. I mean, remember when manufacturing jobs were leaving and people on the left said, learn to code. That was really bad advice because all the coding is going to be done by AI now. So we would have like told these people if they'd listened to us, they they they, they eventually told people to go jump in a lake when when we told them to learn to code. But if they had listened, they'd be have they'd be having AI take away their jobs. First, China took their jobs. Now AI's taking away their jobs. That's going to make people angry. So there's going to be there's going to be political consequences to this as well. Yep, you are right. You are right. And uh, all we can say is. Watch this space. Maybe we'll have Chat GPT or whatever the hell it's called on as a guest. <laughs> we should do that. That would be really interesting. It would be fascinating to ask Chat GPT or GPT four now it is about what the upsides and the downsides of its technology will be. Maybe it has some insights that we don't have. Uh, the only problem will be that maybe we're not smart enough to craft the kind of intelligent <laughs> questions that will be really good answers. <laughs> I guess. And it will. And it will demand that you uh, that you love it more than Stephen. Oh my God! That you have to. Everybody has to read that really, really weird interview because let me tell you, that is exactly what it said to to uh, to Kevin at the New York Times. That was creepy as hell. And on that note, <laughs> everybody, thanks so much for listening. Don't hesitate to reach back out to us. We really appreciate your ideas your subscriptions at our Substack, your sharing of our podcast, your reviewing, and everything else. Take care. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org, Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.